the toddler room is open. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We know that the Christmas season uh, means different things to different people. And the, the different life seasons we go through will make Christmas be different from year to year. Lord, I thank you for those who are able to celebrate and rejoice uh, with family and friends. And I pray for those who have lost loved ones recently or Christmas is just a tough time to get through for them. We know that you are the same God that we can rely upon uh, throughout any seasons in our lives and especially around Christmas time. I thank you for your word and the power that it gives to us. That even in our darkest times, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with us. We thank you for that promise. We thank you that we can rest in that. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you watch any, at least, children's Christmas special on TV or Netflix or YouTube or Hulu, you'll notice that the meaning of Christmas is depicted not as wanting and getting gifts, but the reason for the season usually revolves around the same general theme, the joy of giving and gathering together with family and friends. Charlie Brown's probably the closest to the meaning of Christmas when Linus gets up and quotes from the Gospel of Luke. Ask anyone on the street what Christmas is all about and you'll get a similar answer, rejoining with and being with family. Well, that answer is sort of right and sort of not right. Here's why. We know the reason for the season is Jesus' birth. But when it comes to the biblical answer for what is the meaning of Christmas, the theme of family is also involved heavily. Firstly, you have this teenage girl who would become the mother of the Messiah, who forsook the peace of mind of being married and cared for. Mary knew exactly what she was signing up for when she said yes to being pregnant out of wedlock by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. She risked a life of destitution back in that period of time when her betrothed eventually found out and possibly disowned her. Mary risked everything in her earthly life to carry, bear, and raise the Son of God. And then there was the Messiah's earthly father, Joseph. Yes, he planned on breaking off the betrothal, but doing so in a way that wouldn't humiliate Mary. But when the angel appeared to him and told him to follow through with the marriage, he wholeheartedly obeyed and legally raised this child as his. He raised this child up in the knowledge of scripture and in learning a trade that he could use for the rest of his life. There were the other children that Joseph and Mary had, half-siblings with Jesus, who grew up with Jesus as their brother. <laughs> Imagine being a sibling of Jesus who did no wrong. You couldn't blame anything on him. Your parents would see right through that. It wasn't after Jesus ascended back to heaven that we find out from Acts chapter 1 that Jesus' brothers joined their mother in faith in Jesus and all that he said he was. But family also factors into the meaning of Christmas and how the gospel writer Matthew flat out starts out his gospel with none other than the legal bloodline of the Messiah. 
the conception and birth of whom Matthew would reference immediately following that. And if you think about it, this bloodline has everything and as much to do with the Christmas story as what follows in Matthew and what Luke describes in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Why? Because even Jesus' bloodline conveys what the entire story of Jesus, including his birth, conveys. One word, redemption. Jesus, at the end of this specific bloodline, is the end cap to an entire thousands of years story of God's redemption of human lives. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you didn't, uh, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Matthew chapter 1 or look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. Before we get into the story of this bloodline, I want to cover verse 17 first, which we read for our scripture reading, to clear up something. You might know this already. There are actually two different genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament. One is here in Matthew, which we're covering today. The second is in Luke chapter 3. The problem is that there are two major differences in the two genealogies. That is, two different places where they break away from each other. One place is immediately after David, and the other is immediately after Zerubbabel. This has led to criticism of the Bible's credibility. But these discrepancies can be cleared up in two different ways. The first is in the focus of each of these genealogies. Matthew's is this in verse 17, which again, we read during our scripture reading, but read along with me again. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. See, Matthew's point is dividing Jesus' genealogy into three different sections of Jewish history, as well as directly connect him to the two most important Old Testament messianic covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Without getting too technical, because I know it's, you've already been celebrating Christmas and, and you might need some more coffee this morning. It's already been a long weekend. The, but the Abrahamic covenant is directly connected to the new covenant, which we're under through faith in Jesus because it's based on God founding it upon himself and it all being based on grace through faith. The Davidic covenant, or the, God that, the, the covenant that God made with David, is directly connected to that now and not yet messianic king and kingdom, which we spent our time discussing last week. Contrastingly, Luke bases his genealogy on connecting Jesus' origin, both divinely and humanly, through Adam as being 100% human and a universal redemption for the world. And then all the way back to God as being 100% God. Beyond that, there is one more theory for the discrepancies between the two lists. And interestingly enough, at least interesting to me anyway, <laughs> is that Matthew's list focuses on Jesus' legal genealogy and legitimate claim to David's throne and Jewishness through Abraham, through Joseph's family line while Luke's list focuses on Jesus' physical genealogy and legitimate claim to David's throne and Jewishness through Abraham through Mary's family line. 
Everybody with me so far? Okay. Remember, Jesus was Mary's physical child, but not Joseph's physical child. Jesus was Joseph's legal child. Even though Jesus wasn't Joseph's physical child, he was made legally such by way of Joseph marrying his mother before he was born and making Jesus his legally firstborn son. And Matthew wanted to legally back up Jesus' royal and Jewish bloodline, whereas Luke wanted to back up Jesus' physical connection to that same bloodline. It's also quite plausible that Luke, as he flat out told the gospel's recipient, Theophilus, that he had thoroughly investigated everything in his gospel himself to make sure it was attested to, he had interviewed Mary herself as a part of that investigation and therefore included Mary's bloodline. One other interesting note of evidence to back this up before we jump back into Matthew's account. When you look at Luke's record of Jesus' genealogy, he words it in a curious way. He says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Joseph is mentioned but only as the supposed earthly father of Jesus. Now look back at our passage this morning, specifically at Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. Who is Joseph's father listed there in verse 16? Jacob, not Heli, a man named Jacob. So what's going on here? Most likely, Heli in Luke chapter 3 is Mary's father. Now, here's why. Whereas Matthew included some women, which we'll dive into the significance of the redemption of that in a minute, Luke only records men. Luke would not have broken that off to include Mary, so instead he includes the closest male in Mary's bloodline, who would have been her father, and Jesus' human maternal grandfather. Long story short, and now you can wake up again. You might have dozed off there and all that. You can wake back up again. Both Matthew and Luke show how Jesus was both legally and physically connected and descended from Abraham and David. The other implication of Matthew 1.16 is how Matthew writes that. He writes, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of of Mary by whom Jesus was born through Mary you see that right who is called the Messiah again Matthew is very clear about Jesus's origin notice how Matthew words it Jesus was physically born from Mary and his connection to Joseph is that Joseph was Mary's husband Matthew does not say Jesus's father he says he was Mary's husband even here, right at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew is quick to clear up that Joseph was not Jesus' physical father, but he was without a doubt Jesus' legal father. Jesus could now still also legally claim Joseph's lineage. In Matthew, we get the emphasis on Jesus' connection to both Abraham and to David. But there are some very interesting life stories, including Abraham and David, and all the names Matthew records in between. As I go through the highlights, it's not going to be every single one of these names, don't worry. It would be here till tomorrow if I did that. But 
If I, as I go through the highlights of Matthew's list, I want you to keep track with me as we start in verse 1. Who do we start with? We start with Abraham. We obviously know humanity didn't start with Abraham, but God's chosen people started with Abraham. Luke goes all the way back through Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. But in Matthew, we have God choosing a people for himself. We as Gentiles are only grafted onto that tree of faith originating with Abraham through faith in Jesus. So, if you think about it, this is where our story of redemption starts too. Remember, by the, by, by the time Abraham walked the earth, from Noah's sons until Abraham, faith in the one true God had once again disappeared from the face of the earth. And Abraham himself was also thoroughly pagan. He, he was a moon god and other family patron deities worshiper. But God broke through human history and time again to personally reach out to and call this particular pagan man to put his faith and trust in the one true God's promises. By Abraham doing that, and as Paul will recount, God counting him as righteous based only on his faith, we have the foundation for our faith in Jesus and repentance of our sin being enough for God to justify us, count us as righteous, and give us the hope of an eternity spent with him. That all started with the covenant God makes with Abraham. This covenant would be to give Abraham descendants, land for those descendants, and a promise to bless those who bless those descendants and curse those who mess with them. This is why believers in Jesus have stood up with up for and protected the Jewish people for 2,000 years. We take those ongoing words to heart because we know, well know that, as Paul referenced in Romans, God is not done with his people. There will be a day in the end times when he will redeem all of them still living and they will all put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. We see the redemption of God throughout Abraham's life. We see how God grew Abraham's faith throughout his life. Yes, Abraham sinned and he made mistakes because he was human. But we see God never giving up on him. That's what we see. So when Abraham is about to plunge his knife into the promised and one and only son, he did so in faith, knowing that if God let him follow through, he would raise Isaac back to life. That's a faith grown out of years of following God around the area of Canaan and having that faith grown in him. God then preserved the bloodline of the covenant by leading Abraham's servant to find a wife for Isaac from Abraham's family. This would ensure that the faith in the one true God wouldn't get sucked into and contaminated by the pagan Canaanites who surrounded the one family on earth that worshipped him. And God continued to preserve this bloodline by leading Jacob to also marry from his grandfather's family. 
Jacob had his flaws, just like any one of us, but he eventually put his faith in the same God his father and grandfather worshipped. We talked about that conversion experience a few weeks back. And God continued to redeem Jacob's life, all the way through to him finally being reunited with his beloved son Joseph and being the first missionary to the Pharaoh that ruled pagan Egypt at that time. From Jacob, and that's why I said you can work your way down through this with me. From Jacob came a man named Judah. If you thought Jacob had a lot to be redeemed from, let's talk about Judah. Here's where we really start to see God's redemption of a human being. Judah was Jacob's fourth son, born from Jacob's less loved wife, Leah. Judah grew up watching his mom not loved by his father, and when it came time for Jacob to move his gigantic family back to Canaan, but fearing the wrath of his wronged brother, Esau, he, Jacob divided his family up seemingly by worth, so if Esau attacked any of them, the most, family mem most valuable family members in Jacob's family could escape. Judah watched himself get put into the second to the last and less valuable group. It was Judah's idea to sell his own half-brother, Joseph, into slavery. Talk about a cold heart. Then when Judah got married, his two sons were so evil that God himself just killed them to spare the rest of humanity. Wow! Talk about a family legacy. It doesn't stop there. One of those sons' wives was a woman named Tamar. Judah broke his promise to Tamar to have her marry his third and last son, which was what he was supposed to do according to ancient custom. Seeing no other option for legitimate children, Tamar dressed up as a prostitute and tricked her own father-in-law into sleeping with her. Still not knowing what he had done when Judah found out that his daughter-in-law was pregnant by way of prostitution, he demanded she be put to death. Eventually, everyone found out that the twins Tamar were carrying, what was carrying, were indeed Judah's, and Judah was forced to acknowledge these as his. The firstborn son was named Perez, as Matthew records here in verse 3. Talk about redemption here. Out of all of this dysfunction, God includes the next son in the messianic bloodline from Judah with the first woman Matthew includes on this list, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. This was undoubtedly to show the uncommon way God included Perez in the bloodline and the extreme level of his redemption in the face of human sin. There's nothing that God cannot overcome and no sin and no dysfunction that God cannot redeem. I think all of us can say a hearty amen to that. Even well after Perez's birth, Jacob prophesied that the coming deliverer, Messiah, would come from Judah's bloodline. After all of that, that's God's redemption. There's not much known about the next five guys on Matthew's list, other than that they were full-blooded Jewish men and members of the tribe of Judah, since these tribal and geneolo genealogical records were known before the Romans destroyed the Jewish temple and all the tribal records were lost in 70 AD. 
By the way, that's why the Messiah had to be born before 70 AD, so this all could be checked out. However, the next name on this list, Boaz, tells us what happened during the course of the generations of these five men. Boaz lived during the time of the judges over Israel. So during the lives of these five men, a lot happened in the history of Israel. It was during the lifetimes of these five men that Israel went from Jacob's family moving from Canaan to the land of Goshen, an agrarian suburb of Egypt proper during the governorship of Jacob's other son, Joseph. The descendants of Jacob's 12 sons flourished in the area of Egypt, multiplying rapidly as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. However, by the time a certain pharaoh came to power, this huge population of Hebrew people living so close to Egypt was disconcerting, and he forced them into slavery, an enslavement that would last for 400 years. God eventually redeemed his people from this physical enslavement by using a man named Moses and establishing the Jewish festival of Passover to commemorate God's salvation from death by way of the covering blood of the Passover lamb. Moses led this newly freed group of two and a half million people through the Red Sea, all the way down through the Sinai Peninsula and down to Mount Sinai. There, God gave this new nation of Israel laws to obey, to show him their love for him. It was never supposed to be about strict obedience to the law. It was always supposed to be about a love for God the basis for all those who were saved before Jesus was born. Obedience was to come out of that love. And the prophesied deliverer that Jacob declared would come from the tribe of Judah would need to perfectly obey all of this law in order to fulfill it out of love for God. The generation of the original recipients of this law would all pass away in 40 years of wandering around the wilderness. But the next generation, including one of these five guys in Matthew's list, would enter the promised land of Canaan, conquering Jericho and a bunch of other cities and Canaanite tribes. The land would be conquered and divided up under Joshua. Once Joshua died, the nation of Israel would be ruled by a series of judges, characterized by a time in which the book of Judges describes everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what characterizes that whole time period. But it seems like a page ripped directly out of 2021, doesn't it? But even this was a time of God's redemption, marked by his time and time again deliverance of his people by these judges from oppressive people groups who sought to destroy the bloodline of the prophesied Messiah. That's what brings us to Boaz. Boaz lived during this time of the judges, and Boaz himself is a picture of God's redemption too. Not himself directly, but a couple of women connected to him. Who does Matthew say Boaz's mother was? Rahab. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Anybody who knows anything about Old Testament history. Who was Rahab? Another prostitute. 
who lived in Jericho, but was spared from destruction by saving the two Israelite spies she hid from the Jericho authorities. In fact, Joshua tells us that her family settled among the people of Israel. So Boaz was half Israelite and half Canaanite. There's another huge example of God's redemption in a human life on the way to the birth of the Messiah. God can and will use anyone, no matter what their past or past sin is. Rahab's son, Boaz, married a Midianite woman named Ruth. Ruth's husband, before this, died, and instead of abandoning her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, Ruth made the conscious decision to stay with her and make Naomi's God her God. And as such, God orchestrated things so that Boaz could marry Ruth, and not just marry Ruth, but marry her as what was literally called a kinsman redeemer. This concept of a kinsman redeemer quite clearly is a portrayal of how Jesus redeems us in the illustration of the church being his bride in the New Testament. Boaz and Ruth's son was Obed, about which we don't know much about himself other than that he was the father of a man named Jesse, and who was Jesse's famous son, none other than King David. Israel's history transitioned into being ruled not by judges and not recognizing God as king, but by a human king, starting with King Saul. David was a man after God's own heart and lived most of his life to please God out of love for him. David is famous for all the Psalms he wrote, many of which give several important prophecies regarding the Messiah. Two of these prophecies are that the Messiah would be the eternal king and that the Messiah would, not, would die but would not see decay, a reference to his resurrection. David wanted to build a permanent temple for God, but instead God built a new covenant with David, that messianic king whom David wrote so many prophetic psalms about would come from his royal bloodline, and that messianic king's kingdom would last forever. This is the second covenant Matthew wished to clearly connect to the Messiah and his legal genealogy to. David's son, Solomon, was also a product of God's redemption of a sinful event. Solomon's mother was a woman named Bathsheba, who David obsessed over so much that he committed adultery with her and then deviously had her husband killed in order to be able to marry her. David did receive the just consequence for this evil act as the child conceived the first time David and Bathsheba slept together, died as an infant. But one of the next children David had with Bathsheba was a boy named Solomon who would grow up to be the next king. Solomon started out well with being given a supernatural gift of wisdom and built the great temple of Solomon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But that was all about what was noteworthy about him. Solomon ended up turning away from God so much that God told him he'd divide that kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of Judah, when his son became king. 
There's this period of royal kings following Solomon in Matthew 1, 7 through 11, all of which are kings over the southern kingdom of Judah. This keeps in line with the royal bloodline directly tied to the tribe of Judah. Some of these kings are good, some are bad. You can even catch glimpses at God's redemption in this list and that there are even good kings who come after bad kings to lead the nation back to God. Hezekiah was saved from a would-be fatal illness by God's miraculous and redemptive intervention. And Josiah was a boy king who, upon discovery of the law during a repair project of the temple, led his people to turn back to God. But then we come to the king of Judah, Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, the king at the time of Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, captured it, and took Jehoiakim and all the royal officials and men of note back to Babylon, setting up the last king of Judah before the Babylon exile, a puppet king named Zedekiah. However, Zedekiah rebelled, was captured, and all of Zedekiah's sons were killed by Nebuchadnezzar, which is why we only have the royal bloodline going through Jehoiakim. After Zedekiah was killed, basically everyone but the poorest of the poor in Judah were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. At the same time Jehoiakim was brought to Babylon, there were some other royal men brought with him. You might recognize these guys, Daniel and his friend Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard me teach on this before, but it's from the Babylonian and then Persian order of wise men called Magi that Daniel was a part of in Babylon that certain men who would bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh were descendants of. Because Daniel was so highly revered, especially by the Persian king, Daniel's Jewish scriptures that he had brought from Jerusalem with him were preserved in Persia. Scriptures that would eventually be studied by the Magi, who would then start looking for a star signifying the true Jewish king had been born. Just another note of God's redemption. Even in Babylon... God protected his people in this royal bloodline, most famously through the experiences of Mordecai and his relative Esther. In Matthew 1.12, we find out that this same former king of Judah, Jehoiakim, eventually became the grandfather of a man named Zerubbabel. It's during Zerubbabel's lifetime that the Jewish people are allowed to return to Jerusalem and Judah by way of a Persian king's decree. Zerubbabel is the one in scripture and Jewish history to oversee the building of the temple in in Jerusalem, rebuilding it, and making sure Israel followed the Jewish law again. God had redeemed his people once again and put them back in the land he had promised to Abraham many, many years before. The men from Zerubbabel to Jesus' legal father Joseph, we also don't know much about either. Shortly after Zerubbabel, God just stopped revealing messages to his people through prophets, a period in theological history known as the 400 years of silence. We can see, though, God's redemption throughout this period of time. Pretty soon after Zerubbabel, the Greeks invaded Judah and once again sought to destroy the Jewish people and therefore the royal bloodline. God stepped in used the Maccabee family to overthrow Greek oppression, and the Jewish people still celebrate this redemption as Hanukkah today. 
The Romans conquered and occupied this area pretty soon after that, paving the way for messianic fervor among the Jewish people to be at an all-time high and the gospel message to explode across the Mediterranean world by way of the extensive network of Roman roads and relative peace established by Caesar Augustus. When you look at everything about how the way the world was at the point of Jesus' birth, as Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, it truly was the perfect time in human history for it to happen. And all of this leads up to verse 16, when Joseph's legal son and thus legitimate claimant to the throne of Joseph's bloodline predecessor, David, was born and laid in a manger because no one else could make any room for him. Christmas is a celebration of redemption, not only because of the redemption that this baby who would grow up would win for us on the cross and then defeating death, but because of everything God did to lead up to that. We can see in every aspect of this legal bloodline, God's redemption, not only in preserving his people until the Messiah could be born, but in individual lives and families as well. God truly is the God of redemption. Amen? Let him redeem everything about you. Let him redeem everything about your family, your pasts, your struggles, your fears, and your whole life. Let him redeem it. I hope we've all seen by going through this list, there's no doubt that God can redeem all of it and will redeem all of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For a seemingly boring list of names in, in this Gospel of Matthew that actually tells a beautiful and grand story of your redemption. Your redemption not only in personal lives, but your redemption of the entire nation of Israel leading up to the Messiah and therefore the redemption of the entire world. We thank you what this means for us. This points out in very clear ways that God can and will redeem everything about our lives as well. There's nothing too bad, there's nothing too uh, disgusting about our pasts that God cannot redeem. And that gives us hope. And the hope, we only have this hope because Jesus was born, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus is coming back for us. Let us take the hope of this redemption with us as we continue to celebrate Christmas this week and we start a brand new year this week. Let us take this hope with us. In Jesus' name, amen.